Sutra 27 The Eight Limbs of Yoga By now all the expenses I had as a human piled up so high. But what did the deceased make of debt? Forgiveness looked at me once, and I knew I had to let it all go. But how do you let go when you barely have anything left? No insurance out at Kailash. No protection from life or accidents. All that was left were the cats, wind horse, and a brass door four floors up in the mountain, and I still hadn't taken a single step up. I was not like the eastern souls who walked and prostrated around the base, for I was not accustomed to their ways, and so I preferred to sit alone in this cave, mostly cross-legged, and sometimes I would sit on my knees. There I would stare up at the mountain's peak, and I couldn't help but wonder what might be beyond the brass door that wasn't yet free. Was it concealing an artifact or a treasure? Oh, what might it be? I don't know how to explain it, but I knew that whatever was beyond the brass door, it was my destiny to set it free. I thought back to what led me here, and it all started with an intuitive feeling that didn't speak with a voice. I felt it on December 28th, 2012, and once I felt it, I knew it would take great action to carry out my choice. Now I wish I could tell you what the feeling was, but as time came to pass, I learned to call her Windhorse. She swept me up with a giant rush, and this uplifted touch felt as if I'd been submerged into an all-encompassing source, as if I'd been thrown into a pool, and the wetness of the water swallowed me in. She was like a new realm, and the second boomy was more like a palace where the soul swims. Once I had found it in a body, but it was my soul that felt it most. You see, it's the soul that travels, and in truth, we ourselves are much like variations of a holy ghost. There's something we should examine when it comes to dealing with the realm of spirit. We are all made of it, and so we have no reason to fear it. We may fear for our bodies, or maybe we're afraid in our minds, but the spirit that led me, it showed me without words that all is divine. From that day on, my life changed, and all my concentration was based upon a single plan. Instead of following what everyone deemed as right, I turned left, and I did this because I was confused about our world and the injustice created by the human man. I was so angry against the world's cruelty. I felt angry against the wicked and violent thieves. I was upset against wars and weapons, and there was something in my heart that had to believe we could live in peace. I believe in a better world, one that isn't ruined by politicians. And on December 28, 2012, in a past life, I had touched a great teacher. Her name was Windhorse, and now I could finally listen. She was that Holy Spirit. She was the great seer called the Higher Self. And just like any good idea, a ghost must be spoken to a little before it will explain itself. I was curious about what she was trying to show me, while everyone else seemed to be obsessed with getting more and more. People chased more popularity, gaining more money and fame. 
all the so-called normal people treated life like there were winners and losers, and everyone seemed obsessed with winning this made-up game. Now the winning seemed great, but the losing took away from natural life. The majority of people were dying because the world was overrun by anger and fights. Shootings and murders happened regularly. Wars and bombs were always known. Of course, everyone wanted to stop it in their hearts, but everyone pointed fingers because no one wanted to admit that they were to blame all on their own. The winners lived in mansions and palaces, and they were called the 1%. From their perspective, it seemed that the 99% of people were losers who could barely afford to pay their rent. By their standard, I was a loser, but I was led by the truth that many couldn't comprehend. And the deeper I explored the feeling that Windhorse led me to, it seemed as if I lost more and more friends. It didn't matter what needed to be done, but something in this world needed to change. Society itself was lost, and the people pretended that the only things that mattered were the material things and the wealth you gained. But once we pass into death, the spirit lives inside out. All the filth, gunk, and bad decisions we make in the body is what is revealed to everyone else. Let go and you will know. Let go and you will grow. All material will someday perish, and the truth is that everything you see is made up of our spiritual soul, said forgiveness. Deep in that cavern, the idea of giving it all up came to me. I could release even the words holding me down, and I would set all that holds me back free. If I am not the body, and I am not this mind, then within all of us is the source that is the great seer, which is complete and divine. The journey home starts exactly where you are. We'll have to let go of everything to find it, but the path is not so far. It is within us. Know this as the journey home. Don't you see it's all perfect? We're all walking each other home, said Mr. Kismet. That night got colder than anyone cared for, and so came a few signs. The fire in me was running low in this cavern, and I could no longer turn back, but rather, I was left to face the mind. With the fire almost gone, I wrapped a blanket around me for an extra layer. Then I checked my pockets, and all I had left was a little paper and a few herbs. This was the last of it. These herbs were an offering from a sacred sprout. Then I threw the end of the herbs upon the fire, and I took a giant breath in. Then I let it out. We will dedicate it to Maharaji, remover of darkness. Wrapped in a blanket of this world, you are a homing beacon of the heart. One foot in form, one in the formless. To you, it's all one. Your love is like the sun, said Mr. Kismet. It was so dark while I waited for the moon to rise, and every so often I'd hear the doubts in my mind. And so I decided I would catch the fear, meet it, and try to understand what there was to find. In that night, that last dance with Mary Jane, the cats and I sat in the cold when I knew this matter of breaking a brass door open was somehow symbolic of getting access to my own heart through the path into the brain. 
You see, it wasn't about me, but there is something within us all that must be set free. A hidden creative potential available when we shift our focus into our hearts. Then we live dedicated to the we and not so much about the me. Once that fire was gone, I would not allow the spirit to quit. It is from a dark night that we are illuminated and like a star, there was a vibrational essence of the seer that began to emit. This vibration was within. It was the source of power within every soul. Surely this light could find a way through the brass door. But if it's possible, is it out of my individual control? I sat and reflected. I meditated and contemplated. As a witness, I was an observer beyond which a great seer waited. I could not see the path ahead, and I wasn't even sure if it was I who could ever find it. But I had arrived here in this moment, and so the perfection was with us even when it's very hard to notice it. It's something like a hunch, or a feeling in the gut. The intuition took hold of an idea, and this is a sensation that we can trust. Yes, the fire had gone out, but there was something still here, watching over me through the darkness. Then I realized I was strong enough to face all the mind's fears. When I had nothing left to fight over, not any land or things to claim, I found that I was seated in a holy city, and there I saw how all of us were the same. We are of the universe. We are man and woman upon land. We may wonder where we're headed, and if God really has any plan. But it is happening. It's here and now. Before the fear made me constrict, but now the source of power within began to creep open as if the loving grace was finally allowed. At that moment, I saw a creature move in the cave. It was something sly and suspicious. What a strange coincidence, and since it did not attack me, I called this creature auspicious. A snake crawled underneath the rock I sat upon, and so it slithered around my spine. There beneath me, it twisted in three and a half circles, all while I'd been contemplating within the mind. How long had it been there? All this time? It seemed to be listening to my thoughts thinking, because maybe it was guiding the rhythm behind these rhymes. It was connected to a spiritual essence, all that was optimum and essential. This snake could be feared, but it was also a guardian of the unawakened creative potential. The snake is a great symbol of our highest potential. It is said that Shakti, our creative life force, lies dormant at the base of our spine in the form of a coiled snake. Can you consider the amount of untapped potential within? What would our lives look like if we woke it up? How can we stir it from its slumber? An experienced yoga or meditation teacher can lead the way. Make haste. The snake appears when there is no more time to waste. And what do I make of this? Well, it didn't hiss. Just wait and observe. All things can be teachings. Just listen and see to whatever may be heard. If a person wishes to be sure of the road they tread upon, they must close their eyes and walk in the dark," said Mr. Kismet. He's right. This is a matter of the heart, the place where creation starts, and so we are called to restore that connection back to the cosmic heart. That's what's beyond the brass door. The dawn of the cosmic heart has been waiting to rejoin with man. 
Break down the brass door and let love out. Break down the brass door and we'll free all creatures throughout the land, said forgiveness. But then what about the wars? Break down the brass door, then how can there be any more? Open the heart and evil will fall apart, said forgiveness. But where do we start? The eight limbs of yoga, said Mr. Kismet. Which are? First, yama, or self-restraint. Second, niyama, or observance. Third, asana, which is practice of postures. Fourth, pranayama, or breath control. Fifth, pratyahara, or sense withdrawal. Sixth, dharana, or concentration. Seventh, dhyana, or meditation. And eighth, samadhi, which is contemplation, absorption, and the superconscious state, said Mr. Kismet. We must first understand that when these eight are aligned, the spiritual source of the soul rises, and so it could be symbolized as a snake coiled around your spine. It rises through your soul to illuminate you like a star. The purpose of all life is to discover who we are. These eight limbs are like secret keys. They are pathways that can be channeled. In essence, this is the illumination when the ego is dismantled, said forgiveness. Yama, or moral restraints, consists of non-violence, truthfulness, non-stealing, celibacy, and non-greed. With the first limb, we should remember that each of the eight limbs are equal to the others and all are necessary. Nonviolence, which is called ahimsa, means not causing pain, or it could be thought of as causing the least amount of pain possible. Some translate it as non-killing, but causing pain could be even more harmful than killing. Even by words, even by thoughts, you could cause pain. Truthfulness is called satya, and this means not lying, whereas non-stealing is called asteya, but they are not easy to perfect. Then when it comes to celibacy or brahmacharya, it's about continence, which is based on the preservation of creative energy. And the last part of the yamas, we come to non-greed or aparigaraha, which means non-hoarding of things, not being greedy, and not accumulating beyond our capacity to use things in the proper way. These five principles make up the yamas, the abstentions, said Mr. Kismet. So these yamas are self-restraint, and what are they for? These great vows are universal, not limited by class, place, time, or circumstance. They are great vows, and for those who are devoted, they must not be broken by any excuses. It doesn't matter what time, place, purpose, social class, winter, summer, morning, evening, country, or nationality. These abstentions are for dedicated yogis, and so the power of creation is aware of those who maintain these vows, said forgiveness. While the yamas are self-restraints or abstentions, the niyamas are moral observances. Niyama consists of purity, contentment, accepting but not causing pain, study of spiritual books, and worship of God, which is thought of as self-surrender. 
The five points of the Yamas, together with the five points of the Niyamas, remind us of the Ten Commandments from Christianity and Judaism, as well as the Ten Virtues of Buddhism. In fact, there is no religion without these moral and ethical codes. All spiritual life should be based upon these things. It is the foundation stone of a devoted life," said Mr. Kismet. It seems that these ten are things that everybody already knows. But then how come that is not quite how life goes? Why is it that so many of us know that these aspects of morality and restraints are good? But how come we don't quite follow through? Do you have any tips that could benefit us along the trials that we go through? When disturbed by negative thoughts, opposite thoughts should be thought of. This is known as cultivating the opposite. This is a very nice clue on how to tame the mind and obstructing thoughts that we don't want. The best way is to notice a troubling thought, then think of the opposite. If we have noticed hatred in the mind, we can try to bring in the thought of love. If we can't do that, we can at least go to the people we love, and in their presence, forget the hatred. So although hatred comes to the surface, we can keep it from coming out or staying long by changing our environment. Another way to think of this is when we experience something painful. We can expand our view to notice that the particular pain we feel also exists in the same way throughout the entire world. If we are feeling brokenhearted, we may take a moment to remember how many people have had their heart broken throughout time and space everywhere. By opening up beyond ourselves, we experience compassion for the suffering we are feeling and relate to all others. In the same way, if we are afraid of dying, we could remember that all beings everywhere have faced a similar feeling. This makes us feel even more connected to the world around us and to all of those who are living and dead. We could also create a positive atmosphere by looking at a holy picture, by reading an inspiring book, by meeting with a special person, or simply by leaving the disturbing environment. This is a very practical point. It is very difficult to control negative thoughts while staying in a negative environment unless we have extraordinary strength. The easiest way is to change the environment. Another way to control a negative thought even before the thought overpowers us is to think of its after effect. Stop and consider. What will happen if I allow this thought to continue? Said forgiveness. This makes sense. But what if someone were to feel an urge toward violence? When negative thoughts or acts such as violence are done, when a reaction that makes violence close to being committed, or even if violence is approved of, whether it's incited by greed, anger, or infatuation, whether the violence is mild, medium, or extreme, these actions are based on ignorance and bring certain pain. Reflecting on this feeling is also known as cultivating the opposite, said forgiveness. This cat knew his stuff, and it wasn't because he was tough, but rather he had learned from grace and cultivated patience. After all the pain and violence he had seen, he had had enough. In the presence of someone firmly established in non-violence, all hostilities cease. Mr. Kismet paused. And that's why we stay so close to forgiveness. We will cover these ten virtues in detail. When the vow of non-violence is established in someone, 
all hostility ceases in his or her presence because that person emits harmonious vibrations. If two people who have hostility between them come across such a person, they will temporarily forget the hostility. That is the benefit of nonviolence. When it is practiced continuously in thought, word, and deed for some time, the entire personality brings out those vibrations. Even wild animals forget their primal nature in the presence of one established in nonviolence. In ancient Hindu mythology, it states that in the forest where the saints and sages lived practicing nonviolence, the animals would only kill when they were hungry. At other times, a cow and a tiger could drink water side by side. The Buddha cultivated this practice. Wherever he went, he brought peace, harmony, and friendliness. Saint Francis of Assisi is another great example of this. Even a little bit of dedication to nonviolence can elevate us to a higher state, said forgiveness. Next, to someone established in truthfulness, actions and their results become obedient. By establishing truthfulness, yogis get the power to attain for themselves and others the fruits of work without doing the work. In other words, things come to them automatically. All nature loves an honest person. Then you do not need to run after things for they will run after you. And if you are always truthful, if no lie comes from your mouth, a time will come when all you say will come true. Even if you say something by mistake, it will happen, because by the practice of truthfulness, the words become so powerful and clean that honesty observes you. It wants to be with you always. If a curse is spoken, it will happen. If a blessing is said, it will happen. The more we lead a life of honesty, the more we will see these results, and that will encourage us to be more honest. With establishment in honesty, the state of fearlessness comes. One need not be afraid of anybody and can always lead an open life. When there are no lies, the entire life becomes an open book. But this comes only with an absolutely honest mind. When the mind becomes clear and serene, the true self reflects without disfigurement, and we realize the truth in its own original nature. A vow of absolute honesty means we can no longer tell white lies either. If by being honest, we will cause trouble, difficulty, or harm to anyone, we should keep quiet. Instead of lying and saying things like, I don't know this, we can be frank and say, I think I know, but I don't want to tell you. This does not mean you should protect a criminal, because not only should we not lie, but we should not cause someone else to lie either. If we do it consciously, we are a part of that lie. In fact, under law, punishment can be greater for the person behind a crime than for the one who actually commits it. So first follow the truth, and then the truth will follow you. In a similar way, a shaman can first learn to smoke and then the smoke teaches them. If an herb or psychedelic plant is inhaled or ingested, there is a period of time where you might feel nauseous or strange, but soon it teaches you, and it may even teach you to stop. Yoga is not a philosophy to be followed with blind faith. In the beginning, it is true that confidence and trust are necessary, but as you continue to practice, 
every step will bring more and more hope, greater and greater confidence. If we are true yogis for just one day, we will be transformed and want more of it. It's contagious, just like any other habit. But first, we must make some sort of effort until we get a taste of the benefit. Similarly, certain candies might appear a little strange, and a child might say, No, I don't want it, when the mother offers it. But if by the chance, the mother exerts some force and makes the child taste it, the child will want more and more. Once we get a taste, even if the whole world stands in our way, it won't keep us from the goal, said Mr. Kismet. Next, to one established and non-stealing, all wealth comes. If we want to become the world's richest people, this is a very simple way. There's no need to get into the stock market or even to go to work. Just practice non-stealing. All of us are thieves, knowingly and unknowingly. We steal things from nature. With every minute, with every breath, we pick nature's pocket. Whose air do we breathe? It is nature's. But that doesn't mean we should stop breathing and die. Instead, we should receive each breath with reverence and use it to serve others. Then we are not stealing. If we accept it and don't give anything back in return, we are thieves. We steal because of greed. We want to do a little and get a lot. Many people go to the office and just sit around, use the phone to make their own appointments all day, take free supplies from the supply room and accept their paycheck at the end of the week. Aren't they stealing that money? Do we not also steal other people's ideas? If we are completely free from stealing and greed, contented with what we have, and if we keep our minds serene, all wealth comes to us. If we do not run after it, before long, it runs after us. If nature knows we aren't greedy, she gains confidence in us, knowing we will never hold her for ourselves. But normally, when we get something, we tend to lock it away and put the keys in a safe place. We tend to imprison our possessions, whether money, property, or even people. The moment we try to imprison money, for example, the money feels like, what is this? I want free movement. They made me round so I could roll, but here I am locked up. Oh, I've come to the wrong person. The moment I get the chance, I'll roll away. Some stingy people never open their vaults. The money just sits inside and prays. Please, somebody release me, says the money. Inevitably, the prayer is heard by a robber who comes to the rescue. Instead, we have the attitude, if you want to come, come. When you want to go, go. Everything will say, Why do you push me away? Let me stay with you. Don't send me away. I experienced this myself. I never lock up anything. Things just come and stay. Even if I tell them to go, they beg to be with me. We can all see this by situations with kittens. They may come to us, play, sit in our laps, but the moment they want to go, if we try to hold them, they will become bored and try to run away. The next time we call for the kittens, they'll think, I don't want to come. Those people just keep me with them. Instead, if we just allow the kittens to leave when they want, they'll certainly come to us again. Another way of stealing things is by not letting others use them. Suppose we buy a bunker in Hawaii. 
where suppose we own thousands of acres of land, most of which we don't use. If there are people who want to buy a hundred acres and we don't let them, we are stealing its usage. If you have 50 garments in your closet and your neighbor doesn't have even one, you are stealing your neighbor's usage. Just because certain people have the buying power to make a lot of purchases, they raise prices for poor people who don't have much money. If everyone merely bought for their own necessity, goods would be left over in the stores and prices would come down. The whole world's economy is based on this. In the United States, I have heard that thousands of tons of wheat and potatoes are dumped into the ocean to keep the market in proper conditions and maintain prices. And why don't we plant fruit trees in cities? These cities, states, and countries have laws that restrict where trees can be planted and what type of seeds can dwell in certain places. If we had trees with ripe foods all over, then people wouldn't be so hungry. But yet, the world is most concerned with money and markets. Instead of this greed, these goods and fruits should be given away. But because this lowers prices, nobody thinks much about hunger. Is this not a sin? It is theft. Think of the land. The land belongs to everybody. A person in the corner of Australia is just as much an equal owner of the land as anybody else. If we know how to care and share, no poverty or hunger will exist anywhere in the richest cities in the world. It is a pity to see things like hospitals, art spaces, dance studios, healing and wellness areas being closed for lack of funds, while billions are spent on rockets, alcohol, tobacco, guns, rocket ships, and bombs. Is it more necessary to go to the moon than to take care of our neighbors? I don't want to negate scientific inventions and developments. They are fine. We can all ride to the moon, but only after everyone has been well-fed, clothed, and educated. In southern India, there is a saying, the stomach is crying for a piece of bread, the hair is crying for a bunch of flowers. Which is more important? The hair can live without a garland, but the stomach cannot go without a loaf of bread. So let us satisfy the stomach first. And then, if we have money left over, we can get a number of garlands. Right here, people are sick and dying, while a handful of others want to go to the moon, or live in mansions, or own private planes. Only after the people of Earth are at ease and content can we allow others to live lives of extreme luxury and comfort. The government steal the happiness and health of hundreds and thousands and millions of people. It is public theft a daylight robbery. Sometimes when I hear the news, I really feel funny about all this. Everything is based on fear, pride, and competition. All the anti-ballistic missiles are created out of fear. It is like saying, I'm mortally afraid of you, so I must protect myself with bombs and missiles. But in the next breath, the government says, let's be friends, let's exchange cultural matters. But how can you have both? Another thing I see are the secret plans that appear right in the media. I once heard about a missile system, how it worked, and what its plans were. I really don't understand this principle. If I'm afraid of you, why would I say, here is a blueprint of the pistol I have in my pocket. So with all our modern inventions, we are really living in a horrible state. Our ancestors on horseback and carts 
seemed much happier. They might have gone without radios, television, electronics, and supersonic transport, but mentally, they were happier, more content, and healthier. It is now the time to get rid of this anxiety. How long can we live under such great tension? By all this, we can see richness has nothing to do with monetary wealth. The richest person is one with a cool mind, free of tension and anxiety. Changing all these world situations is not in our hands. We are not going to stop all these things, but what is in our hands is the ability to find joy and peace right here and now. If we live in the present, there is not much that will bother us. We can find happiness even among situations of tension. If we have decided to be happy, nobody can make us unhappy. Anything could happen, and we need not bother about the future, nor should we worry about the past. It has already gone. To be happy this minute is in our hands. We can change ourselves and be free like birds. We can be serene even in the midst of calamities, and by our serenity, make others more tranquil. Serenity is contagious. If we smile at someone, he or she will likely smile back and a smile costs nothing. We should plague everybody with joy. If we are to die in a minute, why not die happily and laughing? But a carefree life is possible only with a well-controlled mind, one that is free of anxiety, one without personal desires or possessions, said forgiveness. As I had been sitting alone for some time, I heard the wind whisper on by. There was peace in this moment when I took a breath in and let out a sigh. <sighs> I started to let go of my own desires. After all, it had been cold since the death of the herb and fire. And as I sat with a snake around my spine, I began to let go of all my desires. Next, by one established in celibacy, vigor is gained. By getting established in continence or celibacy, we save energy. The means to create another being through sex takes energy, and when there is no loss of this vital creative force, we retain our energy. What we gain by saving this is worth knowing. In the name of loving and giving, many times do we lose this energy and become mentally, emotionally, and physically depleted. If we are not strong mentally and physically, we can never gain real spiritual wealth. The main cause for the present chaotic condition among the youth is ignorance about this creative life force. Young people say, when you love somebody, how can you stop giving? But out of love, they do not know what to give. Sometimes they even give diseases. They lose their health and spoil the health of the ones they love. Can you say you love me and completely drain my blood and poison my system? No. If you love a child, Will you make the child eat boxes of candy? That isn't love, it is mere thoughtlessness. If you really love that child, you would say, candy is not great for you. Once in a while you can have some, but I won't let you eat boxes. Even though the child is unhappy about it, you are proving yourself to be a loving friend. The case of brahmacharya is like that. The seminal fluid gives strength and stamina to build brain and nerves. Nervous stability is caused by lack of stamina because it has been drained away. Also, what is the intention of having sex? 
Sex creates babies. And nowadays, so many people use sex for anything but that. They might even conceive, only to abort the baby later on. And the real intention of the sexual act has been lost. Who among us truly lives out of intention? Said Mr. Kismet. The wind grew, and I waited until it was silent and still. The cats waited beside me. And sex is not the only form of loving. Because think of how a brother and sister love one another, a son and a mother, a daughter and father. Sex is not the only way to show love. If love is based only on physical contact, the mind will never be satisfied with just one person. Today there will be this honey, tomorrow that honey, the third day another honey. Where is the limit? Where does the madness end? Seminal fluid is our life. If stored properly, it can bring a lot of energy. When absorbed into the system, it gets transformed into prana. Conserved sexual energy in women also gets transformed. It is that vital force that allows you to really help people and have good relationships. Without much prana or life force, we can never give anything to anyone. Just as a fully charged battery can give power, a weak battery has no power to give. In observing celibacy, we build up this energy. A true yogi should always keep this in mind. Teaching yoga is not like teaching history or geometry. Teachers must impart a life force, a little current, into others. How can they do this if they are weak, if they have a rundown, discharged battery? So keep your batteries full of energy. That doesn't mean you must completely stay away from sex. Instead, start by being moderate. Preserve as much energy as possible. Have sex in the proper way, which is best in a marital relationship. Have one or two children. And until you have a regular partner for life, store the energy. After all, when can you ask a partner to go into business with you? Only after you've saved enough capital. The Hindu system has four stages in life. Student, householder, forest dweller, and renunciate. Until one finishes his or her education, that person would be best to be celibate. With this saved energy, he or she can grasp things well. The brain power is more dynamic. In high schools and colleges now, most students learn sex, drugs, rock and roll, and nothing else. But instead, finish your studies, then go into partnership with another person. That then becomes the householder stage. Bring your knowledge and strength together. You should not come together because of beauty. Because how long will beauty last? However much makeup you wear, physical beauty will not last long. The real beauty is inside, in your character, your noble ideas, your aim in life. With noble ideas, a noble child can be one of your contributions to the world. Expressing your love and affections without overindulgence is not wrong. It is part of nature. Even couples who don't plan to have children can have limitations. Even animals have restrictions. Once a female dog is pregnant, no male can come near her. A lioness brings forth a cub once a year. Certain animals won't even make love in front of others, like elephants. So in your own way, according to your stage of life, have limitations. The stage after being a householder is a forest dweller. 
This is where the husband and wife have finished their worldly responsibilities and become totally involved in spiritual pursuits. They take pilgrimages or stay in an ashram or church somewhere. Then at a certain point, they become renunciates and drop worldly ties completely. They are no longer husband and wife. In certain cases, if an individual has that much discrimination, he or she may become a renunciate directly after the student or householder stage. But these days, many people are interested in premarital tests. This is something like going to a shopkeeper and asking the price of a few apples. A dollar, the shopkeeper says. Are they any good? You ask? Sure, they say. I think I'll try one. Shopkeepers will never let us do that. They'll let us smell an apple and check out its size and shape, but they'll never let us sample it before buying. Are people inferior to apples? Should they allow everyone to come and take a bite before buying? If you really want to offer yourself to somebody, do it purely and chastely. You are offering something very sacred and holy. Why should you let someone pollute this offering? If people want to know one another before marriage, they can become friends. That is how our ancestors lived. But today, in the name of freedom, people go to extremes. By observing celibacy, we preserve not just physical energy alone, but mental, moral, intellectual, emotional, and ultimately spiritual energy as well. Sexual energy that is preserved gets transformed into a subtle energy called ojas. This is similar to personal magnetism. It tones the entire personality, builds the nerves, improves brain power, and calms the mind. There's a similar word to ojas in English, ozone. Early in the morning, before sunrise, we can go out and breathe the ozonic wind, which has a special vibration and energy to it. But once the sun's rays fall, this effect is lost. That is why the period between four and six in the morning is called the divine period and is a very sacred time to meditate and pray. An ojas, when stored properly, creates tejas. Tejas is the aura or the glow. A newspaper report once wrote an article about me during one of my past lives called The Swami Makes the People Glow. How can the Swami do this? Is it some particular yogic makeup? No, everyone can glow and transmit that energy when they preserve a lot of ojas. Even ordinary carbon left under the earth in an airtight chamber for a considerable time gets hardened, changes color, and becomes a diamond. If you preserve honey, it gets crystallized. In the same way, the semen gets transformed and diffused. That is why continence and celibacy, or the preservation of creative energy, is a very important part of yoga. If a handful of people come forward with strong wills, nothing is impossible. One Buddha changed half the globe. One Jesus, three quarters of the world. We all have that capacity. Let us know the value of celibacy, that it certainly will make us strong, happy, healthy, wealthy, and blissful, said Mr. Kismet.